Welcome to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci, and this show is about taking the mystery out of women's hormonal issues and struggles. And today's episode, Lifting the Veil on Antidepressants, What Big Pharma Isn't Telling You. But before we take a deep dive into this incredible episode with my guest today, Dr. Caroline Smythe, she's a functional medicine psychiatrist that is dedicated to helping people get off their meds. And she's done such a beautiful job. So excited about this episode. We've tried to record it three times. The last time it got canceled um, when we had uh, Hurricane Dorian. But here you are today, and I'm going to bring you on in a few minutes. But just say hi to the audience. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm very excited to be able to share some of this. Oh, great. This is awesome. But before we start the show, you know, uh, two weeks ago, I had recorded, um, or maybe at this point you've listened to it, a wonderful podcast. Is it ever really good enough? And I had two of my clients on, uh, Angie Carviello, or Caraviello, and... um, Uh, Amanda Greeley. And Angie had just written me an email a few days ago, and I'd love to share it with everyone. She said, good morning, Meg. Thank you again for asking me to be part of your podcast. It was such a wonderful experience, both to be involved and to meet two amazing women, one, Lindsay, my producer, and Amanda Greeley. They are such accomplished and passionate women. Having some space over the evening and the morning to allow the experience to set in helped me to realize how important having conversations like yesterday are with others, especially women, and how having these conversations help to create the balance we so need every day. I know we've spoken about this, but yesterday really showed me my need to find more opportunities like that in my life, things that are just fun. It was truly amazing and eye-opening experience. Thank you so much for including me, and thanks always for the great talks we have. You are truly a beautiful light, and I am grateful that you are on my journey in my life. And Angie, thank you so much because it really is an honor to be on that journey with you. This is a beautiful podcast. I hope you'll take the opportunity to listen to it. But we as women, how are we leaning in? How can we feel comfortable in our own skin, in who we are? So please check out that episode if you haven't. And now getting back to today's uh, topic Again, really super excited. Lifting the veil on antidepressants, what big pharma isn't telling you. So I'd like to give a little background before um, I bring Caroline onto the show. And again, taking a deep dive into some of these issues that I think really going to bring a lot of clarity to people um, that may be considering antidepressants or have been on them for a long time. Are there other approaches that we can deal with in relationship to addressing anxiety and depression and other mental health issues? So, you know, we've been told that mental health disorders, such as depression, is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And that came about by the uh, serotonin hypothesis back in the late 50s. And this serotonin hypothesis has never been clearly substantiated. There haven't been any studies proving that brain levels of serotonin or any transmitter are in short supply when depression or any mental health illnesses develop. So pharmaceutical companies keep perpetuating and have been riding on this premise for decades. There's much evidence showing that the harms are much greater than patients are being told. So I'd like to set the stage for today's podcast and kind of give you some statistics um, that I find really quite interesting and quite alarming. And I'm excited about today's episode because with Caroline Smythe, we'll be able to explore the various factors and issues that may be triggering and contributing to mental health and behavioral disorders. Global revenue for antidepressants is projected to be about $17 billion by next year. Clinical depression affects 16 million people in the United States. One in six Americans between the ages of 18 and 85 were on a psychiatric drug, um, most of them on antidepressants um, and long-term use. And this is starting to surge in the United States. 
Antidepressants are one of the three most commonly used therapeutic drugs. And today we're going to explore why this is happening. It's not that Americans are deficient in psychotropic drugs. We'll be looking at a bigger picture because in the last six years, ADHD has increased by 15%. Nearly one in 10 kids now has an ADHD diagnosis. And from 2003 to 12, the rates of depression in kids have increased by 65%. Today, one in six children between the ages of two and eight have been diagnosed with mental, behavioral, or developmental disorders. So we need to bring our undivided attention and focus to exploring what these causes are that are multifactorial of what we are calling mental illness, depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and so on. So Caroline Smythe, welcome to the show, and I can't wait to go into this. Tell us about you. How did you get involved in psychiatry? How did you get involved in becoming more of a holistic psychiatrist? Well, when I went to medical school, I actually planned on being a family doc. And, but then I fell in love with psychiatry when I started studying it. And I was really surprised. And then I ended up doing a fellowship in community psychiatry, and my specialty was schizophrenia. So mm -hmm. for about a decade... All of my patients had psychotic disorders, and I worked uh, in community mental health centers. And eventually, um, I moved to Oregon for 12 years, and it was there that I became more of a generalist at the mental health center and was sort of pushed into private practice because they had huge layoffs during that mini recession of 02. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about private practice, but from day one, I opened my door and I thought, I want to practice psychiatry the way I live my life mm -hmm. because we always had an organic garden. You know, I started meditating when I was 16. I would fast on Mondays through college. And so we had this really holistic approach in mm -hmm. the house. I mean, my kids didn't even know that there was such thing as cold medicine. Um, and so I started digging and I started with really easy things, you know, uh, checking thyroid levels, which isn't always easy, but mm -hmm. everybody got a thyroid uh, workup, vitamin D levels, making sure they had adequate good fats in their diet, and then just studying, you know, going to conferences and building it from there. So adding layers and layers. And then um, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine and started training uh, 10 years ago in 2009. Mm -hmm. And that just took my whole practice to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really appreciate when I signed on uh, one, how, just how much I didn't know and had to learn. Um, but it's, it's huge. We're so multifaceted and complex. So I have a question that's really gr interesting yeah. that you brought that, this up because yeah. this is not taught in conventional med schools. You had to actually go back to get this deep training. Oh, I've, I've, um, I've done so much training. Yeah. You know, I did a, I did a four year body oriented psychotherapy training program. And I got certified mm -hmm. in not too long after I finished residency mm -hmm. and got certified in some modalities along right. the way, sort of uh, EFT, something called Psyche. Right. And I swore I would never go into another certification program. <laughs> and But once you open the door, there's no yeah. going back. It almost feels like malpractice now to go, to even consider practicing the way I used to practice. So um, I love it. It's really re rewarding. And it's uh, a really long rabbit hole. Um, but I get better and better, you know, every year. I just add more and more training. And so now I'm part of a really big community that's very passionate about getting to root causes. Mm -hmm. And and what we knew five years ago is not what we know now. So, yeah. you know, we're all learning. So Same here. I mean, everything's changing. I look back at how I practiced, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, I infuse Chinese medicine with an integrative, holistic, Western functional medicine mm -hmm. approach. And I cannot stop learning. And the studies and the research that continues to come out, you know, this science-based or evidence medicine, it's there. It's, it's all there. It's, it's all there. You know, psychiatry, unlike other fields of medicine, is based on a highly subjective uh, diagnostic system. So you have a psychiatrist in an office or a physician, and 
um, they're sitting there with this practitioner, and this practitioner is giving their opinion on their, the symptoms that this individual is describing. So there's no objective testing, there's no blood testing, and, and medication is based on a conversation with the psychiatrist or a five to 10 minute conversation with the primary or OBGYN. Can you talk about that? This is conventional psychiatry or conventional yes, and, treatment. You know, I, I actually think there are a lot of unhappy doctors with the system where the appointments are really brief and they're not yeah. given time to really evaluate or talk about the person's lifestyle, what they eat. Um, and then the, the problem goes back further because in our training, the emphasis is really on psychotropic medication. And uh, while the training at, I was at the Medical University of South Carolina for mm -hmm. both medical school and residency, and the training in psychotherapy was excellent and then mm. very strong training in psychopharm. So I consider psychotherapy part of the holistic approach because that's a, 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 an area where you can get into lifestyle and really go down any road you want. But <clears throat> the training is more of a you know, insight-oriented psychotherapy. So there isn't anything trained, there isn't, there isn't anything in the training about you know, what's from the neck down, what's going on in the body. So, I mean, I can say, you know, guilty as charged when I was in my early years and I would see someone's past medical history because you'd always look at that. Mm -hmm. I barely glanced at it. I thought, well, that's the problem of the primary care doctor. You know, I don't really mm. need to know that much about that. And um, so now we have this system with very brief appointments um, and most physicians are trained to listen to symptoms, come to a quick diagnosis, prescribe a medication. The functional medicine approach definitely requires long appointments. Yeah. And you have to listen to the story because it isn't really like, oh, you can just order these four labs and go from there. You have to be guided by what the patient says. And every single patient's story is different. Yeah. And if you miss that, you know, so my initial appointments are 90 to 120 minutes, depending on the complexity of the patient. The first follow-up is usually a little bit over an hour. Mm -hmm. And I do rely on labs a lot, but a lot of times I, I have a, you have a sense, you know, you just get more skilled sure. as you go, I'm missing something. And then you you go back to the story and maybe even say, can you tell me the story again? Because we're so complex, there's no way you can get it all. But it's, it's sad, I see a lot of people who come, most of my patients come from conventional psychiatry and when I really listen to them, I don't believe that the diagnosis is correct. So they've been on medication and then it's hard to discern once the patient is on the medication, well, is their, is their mood stable because of the medication? Say somebody's misdiagnosed as bipolar, mm -hmm. which is a great example because uh, mood swings are a symptom of many, many different imbalances. Yes. So you come out of an office with a diagnosis of bipolar illness and you're put on a mood stabilizer. Nobody ever goes to the root cause and you don't really figure out what it is. that, And you can be on that medication for years and years and years without ever knowing that you're not really bipolar. So I, I, I do think that there's a lot changing in psychiatry. You know, people are more open, like mm -hmm. Meg and I were talking before we started recording, and she was commenting on the inflammatory etiology of depression, and that used to be just in the sort of functional medicine literature, and now it's in the conventional yeah. uh, literature that an anti-inflammatory lifestyle can really make a difference in mood. So I have hope that it's going to change. And then the other piece is one's immune system. I think so much mental health is about an imbalance in the immune system. So sometimes, uh, I mean, like Hashimoto's is a great example. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because when you just said that, I thought, <clears throat> you know, can we look at depression? Uh, can we look at maybe forms of anxiety or uh, some of these mental health issues as an 
almost like an autoimmune disorder. Something is, is out of whack in the system, and it may not be showing up as quote-unquote antibodies, but you're seeing behavioral issues. And I mean, I had a client that had celiac, and she had been diagnosed as bipolar. Well, well you hit on something that just absolutely shouldn't be left out of this because there's, there's celiac, which is 1% of the population. Yeah. And then there's higher non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Right. And there are actually two different processes. So, you know, initially I think a lot of us thought it was just a spectrum, but it's not Mm -hmm. a spectrum. It's two different processes. And there are a lot of things along your, the way in your life that can happen that can cause you to be gluten sensitive without being celiac. And your symptoms often can be as bad as being celiac. And the target organ for uh, gluten sensitivity is the brain. Yeah. 60%. Everybody thinks it's the gut. You know, I had a patient who came to me with debilitating anxiety. He was a professor and he got to the point where it was really hard for him to teach because his anxiety was so severe. And I found out that he'd been diagnosed with celiac disease, you know, a decade before, but his doctor said, his gastroenterologist said, you don't have any gut symptoms, so it's okay to eat gluten. <laughs> and for nine years, he included gluten in his diet. And then he came to me with this debilitating anxiety. And so celiac and gluten sensitivity don't just manifest in the gut. Yeah. So you can have a quiet gut and then have rampant inflammation in other parts of the body. And so the first thing was to totally get him off of gluten. Mm -hmm. And I eventually saw his daughter also with anxiety, same presentation. Turned out she was celiac, had never been tested. So it's life-changing. Now that is, celiac disease, gluten-free diet is life-changing. Yes. People just haven't been educated about non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So uh, this is a little bit, of a tangent, but I think it's important to note that any stressor, any stressor in life is going to change the permeability of your gut for the worse. Permeability, for those who are not familiar with that, meaning sort of a loosening of the uh, tight, tight junctions of the cells that line the gut. And when those loosen, uh, proteins get through that shouldn't um, uh, also bugs, you know, can get through and uh, become systemic. Um, Undigested food, that's what I mean by proteins, undigested food gets through and you have the immune system recognizes it as not fully digested. It's a, it's a full on protein, which isn't supposed to be there and it reacts. So they did a study on infant monkeys separated from their mothers and they all ended up with gut permeability issues. Kids, on the soccer field who get minor concussions, within one to two hours, your gut permeability is worsening. Wow. A big emotional stress. So what this means is that you may have been eating gluten all your life, and you'd say, if somebody ever suggested that you had a gluten issue, you'd say, no, no way. You know, I've never had a problem Mm -hmm. with that. You know, meanwhile, the person has numerous issues. That can change from any of these stressors. It's like the the switch is flipped and now you have this problem. There is um, something even called, to to drive home the severity of this, um, something called gluten ataxia. And the uh, posterior part of the brain is called the cerebellum and that is for, um, it helps you stay steady on your feet. And uh, gluten sensitivity, if if your immune system goes after the cerebellum, it actually destroys tissue just like Hashimoto's over time is destroying the thyroid and you want to catch it early enough while you have enough thyroid um, to function without Mm -hmm. thyroid replacement. So these patients end up, uh, there's a wing in a hospital in in London that is all uh, gluten ataxia and they come in wheelchairs, on walkers, on canes. You don't ever get it back. So wherever you are, once you get off of gluten, it stops in its tracks, but whatever damage has occurred has occurred. Now, that is never going to be on the radar of most neurologists and, and, and people. So when you think about the implications for depression, 
anxiety. I mean, I've had people suicidal who felt so much better when they got off of gluten. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that it's funny because it keeps coming up, the describing of what a leaky gut is. And we all, yeah. you know, uh, Brittany uh, Henderson was on and gave her description. I did, you did. And it's so important to continue to emphasize how the integrity of the gut impacts everything your immune everything. system, everything. And I agree with you. I've had, I get a lot of referrals of, you know, teenagers and, and women in their 20s, uh, early 20s. And I, in the past few years, I had one kid stop cutting after we took her off gluten. I've had the same thing, kids feeling really dark, I mean, really going to dark places just by making dietary changes. Gluten, I do food sensitivity testing, and I know you do too, but I do yes. have a question. Um, sometimes, how do you feel about people having gluten even if the sensitivity doesn't show up? Well, the problem is the limitation of the labs. So a big general food sensitivity panel, of which I order many. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they're valuable. They're not mm -hmm. perfect, mm -hmm. but it's sort of the best tool that we have for yes. it. Um, it can come up negative for gluten. And the problem is, is that there are dozens of proteins in gluten. Yes. And it only takes you reacting to one of those proteins to have a gluten sensitivity. So there's no lab that actually exists at present. Uh, Cyrex is a wonderful lab that when it was first launched, mm -hmm. um, tested for 12 mm -hmm. uh, antibodies to different you know, proteins and enzymes. And it's now expanded to 24. So sometimes um, if I do a general food sensitivity panel, because uh, a general food sensitivity panel often is less expensive than mm -hmm. the gluten panel for Cyrex. Mm -hmm. So if you start with that and you find out about a number of food sensitivities and gluten comes up negative, but you have a strong suspicion, you can do the Cyrex lab. And that can also come up negative. Mm -hmm. The gold standard which some people are actually reluctant to do. Mm. The gold standard is actually, if you can 100% eliminate gluten for a month, preferably two months, right. get it out of your diet and then reintroduce it. I mean, have toast, a sandwich and pasta all in one day, and then sit back over the next 48 hours and see what happens. Your body is going to inform you whether or not you're gluten sensitive. I love that. So, I love that you said that. That's and it's great. Cheaper. And it's and sometimes it's hard. I mean, it's a tricky thing. Um, and I agree. I, I totally agree. And you know, I've been wanting to ask you this question. I, I I'd love to circle back yeah. to um to serotonin and SSRIs, and we'll come yeah. back to the food because I think it's really important. So if somebody's been diagnosed with depression and given an SSRI, let's say, I don't know, what's- Zoloft. What, let's say they're on Zoloft. Um, and they're like, hey, I'm starting to feel better. What's really going on? Is it influencing the uh, production of serotonin? Or is there something else actually going on in the brain to compensate in some way? So that is a really big question without a short answer. It's a good question. It is a good question. First of all, the way we're all taught is mm -hmm. a trial needs to be a minimum of six weeks. Right. There's no clear explanation why it could take that long mm -hmm. because the, the reuptake blocking of the serotonin the, the Zoloft has already started. Yeah. And so a lot of studies that were buried um, show that the SSRIs are not that much better than the placebo effect. So uh, I can say that in my experience, I do believe there are patients who genuinely feel better uh, when they're started on an SSRI. They get some kind of a bump. Mm -hmm. The same way that I'll prescribe an over-the-counter capsule of 5-HTP, which is 5-hydroxytryptophan, that's the precursor to serotonin, and people can feel better getting some serotonin. However, we're complex, and there, you know, there are a lot of things going on. And a, a big problem, so I'm not, 
how do you discern, you know, is somebody, is the, is it the placebo effect? But what I do know is that long-term it's not a good option because the SSRIs are eventually going to downregulate your serotonin receptors. And it's critical that people understand the physiology of how all of their medications work because then you really have an informed decision. So when, I don't know if the listeners want to hear this physiology, but considering that there are so many people on SSRIs, yeah. um, when you, so you have a neuron that's releasing serotonin. I mean, all of us are doing, we're doing this right now. We're like little factories. We're making all these neurotransmitters. They're all important. We release one, it crosses a little space and it hits on a serotonin receptor that sends a message to your brain to feel good. You know, dopamine does the same thing. Yeah. You know, so there are a, a lot of things that help you feel good. Then it kind of zips back over that space to go back into the cell that released it to be recycled. Now, there are a couple of enzymes in that space that degrade the serotonin as it's taking its little journey. And so you lose some, but it's okay because you're making plenty more. You're eating protein, you're breaking it down, you're absorbing all of this, and you're releasing more. A serotonin reuptake inhibitor blocks the ability for that serotonin to go back into the neuron that made it. You know, we're, we're talking the brain right now, although, you know, less than 3% of the serotonin is made in the brain. Most of it is in the gut, over 90%. But we're just going to talk about neurons in the brain. So now it blocks it, and you have this excess serotonin in that space. And on the one hand, you might think, well, that's a good thing. But the body has an amazing capacity for creating balance and sensing when something is out of balance or abnormal. So these receptors, think of it as, they go, wow, this is a lot of serotonin. This is too much serotonin. This is excessive. And over time, those receptors, say you have a thousand serotonin receptors mm -hmm. on this particular neuron, they sink beneath the surface, some of them, over time. You don't lose them but they're just below that fatty layer of that cell membrane, inaccessible to the serotonin. And that's when you go back to your doctor and say, you know, after six months or so, well, gosh, you know, this dose really isn't helping me. And they go up, 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 and they keep going up. The other thing that happens is... Oh, my God. Yes. And the other thing that happens is that those enzymes that are uh, degrading it uh -huh. have more access to it. So it's gobbling up all the serotonin. And so the the very drug that's designed to increase your availability of serotonin ultimately decreases it. And the off-ramp is tricky because we, we're very good at putting people on SSRIs. Right. But at least when I was in residency, I mean, I was there when the first SSRI came out, Prozac. So I was right there at the transition between the older antidepressants and the new ones. Mm -hmm. May, I don't know if they're taught now, but I don't think so. We're just not taught how to take people off of antidepressants. And if you just abruptly stop your uh, Zoloft or Prozac or Paxil or you know, any, of, any of the antidepressants, um, it, it's too abrupt. It, it's, it's very harsh on your system. Can, can I share an uh, experience that happened to me? Sure. Back in, in 99, um, <clears throat> I had been experiencing depression for a few years, and I, yeah. I think part of it was my gut had been trashed. I actually came back from Vietnam, and I had Girardia, and my gut was so trashed. And I remember after that just feeling a bit more and more depressed, and, and, and I think I had thyroid stuff nobody had picked up on. Anyway, I, dear friend of mine said, you know, you seem really depressed. I, why don't you go see my, my psychiatrist? And I had a really great psychiatrist. He said, we're going to do this short term. I want you to keep up meditation and yoga, and then we're going to wean you off. So he put me on at the time. It was Celexa. It just came out. Yes. And I remember, and it was, I probably went on it in summer and early winter. He said, oh, we'll just take you off. He took me off. Like, cold turkey. And I remember calling him on a Sunday, sitting on the floor in my living room, like I could, I was bawling. And I said, I'm getting electric shocks every 30 seconds. And I am crashing right now. And I don't know what to do. And I said, I'm having a bad reaction to withdrawing, you know, from going off the meds. So, uh, 
you know, abruptly. So he's like, okay, get back on. And then I actually, in, in the year I worked with a homeopath and I was able to wean off. But that it's, was scary. And I still had electric shocks even when I went back on the Celexa for a good month. But it was awful. Well, you know, there's something called protracted withdrawal. And so yeah. some people come off of an SSRI. And when it's well out of your system and your withdrawal should be done, you're having withdrawal symptoms month, months later. And yes. the only way I know to guard against that is to really do it very slowly and to support all the other systems. And obviously to get to the, you know, the idea is to get to the root cause of why is the person depressed in the first place. Yes. Um, but the most... I don't know that I've ever met a single patient who came in and said, oh, yeah, this physiology was explained to me. So you are sort of signing up for uh, a long ride. And what happens is there's, there's never a convenient time to come off. And so people will say, you know, I was ready to come off five years ago, but I tried and it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, I always say, you know, when, by the time people come in to see me, they're really ready to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And I have to slow them down and say, do not, you know, cut this medication in half. Right. Don't come off abruptly. And occasionally people don't, you know, we're not all the best patients, you know, don't listen and they come off too abruptly and they come back and go, oh, oh my gosh, you were really right. Because it's hard to, t- it's much harder to turn that around. Mm-hmm. So, so you do it slowly. Yeah. And, and you can compound any medication at all. So uh, you can compound. Could you explain um, what that means to the audience? So there are compounding pharmacies that can make their own concoction of whatever they want to. Um, And you can literally take your bottle of Zoloft to a compounding pharmacy, pay a small fee, and have it put in uh, a liquid form with a syringe with very, very clear demarcations so you know exactly you know, how many milligrams you're decreasing That's at a great. time. And you know, it's a little bit of an extra effort. Mm-hmm. Some people have chosen to have it put in capsule form and then they just do a decrease once a mm-hmm. month because uh, they don't want to mess with, with that. I really love the, um, the liquid syringe way mm-hmm. of doing it because at some point you may make a decrease and say, whoa, that, I really feel that. And then you have control over it to go up. So I, I do have a question. And, 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 you know, what about people that have been on Wellbutrin for 25 years? How, I mean... Well, it is true the longer you're on an antidepressant, a lot of times yeah. the harder it is because, you know, we're, years. We're, but we're so adaptable and the body does such a good job of creating a new balance. So in many ways it's like you have a new balance. That is your new balance. But can you wean somebody oh, off? Oh, totally. Okay. No, no, no. I, I, you can absolutely get somebody off. And again, you know, if somebody comes in on, if somebody comes in and says, I was put on this medication six months ago, right. we're going to behave very, very differently in the office than if somebody comes in and says 20 years. Yeah. And, and I see that with stimulants. You know, people oh. that are, you know, 30 and they've been on stimulants since they were a child. And... You know, you proceed the same way. It, it, it's slowly, and I do encourage people to do some of the more upfront, mm-hmm. you know, addressing, certainly addressing the gut, the inflammatory process, figuring out, you know, is it a toxin load that's, you know, causing these problems um, first? But if somebody's really eager to sort of feel like they're on a path of decreasing, you could, you could do little tiny decreases and come down while you're addressing the, you know, digging for the root causes. Yeah. I mean, I see as, as well as you do in your practice. I mean, I always look at diet. I look at lifestyle, thyroid, you know, even TPOs and antibodies that, that is missed a lot. And I think thyroid plays a, a big part in, in, I mean, depression and anxiety. Uh, I mean, how much thyroid do you see involved and with your patients? So I check a thyroid panel on everybody, including uh, the TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies, mm-hmm. you know, the reverse T3. I mean, yeah. maybe I shouldn't go into that because that the reverse T3 is requires an explanation. You don't yeah. really need to understand that for this uh, podcast. But um, again, I mean, one of the tricky things about the thyroid is that the antibodies don't always show up. So you can have Hashimoto's, go get your blood drawn and have perfectly normal antibody levels, you know, less than 10, really low, mm-hmm. and, uh, and miss it. 
So there are some docs that will provoke and say, you know, if you've been off gluten, eat gluten for a week. Um, I am very gluten sensitive and I would never agree to do that. But when, when somebody comes in, I mean, what is it? 90% uh, Brittany Henderson would know better. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, that was a wonderful podcast. I listened to that. Um, but I think it's 90% of thyroid disease in the United States is Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. So I explained to my patients, sort of depending on where their numbers are, you know, this is an immune system issue. It's not like you have thyroid disease. You have an immune system gone amok. So this whole notion of molecular mimicry. So your the, the thyroid gland itself, the protein, to the immune system looks like gluten. So if you're a gluten sensitive person, I mean, anybody with Hashimoto's absolutely has to get off of gluten because your immune system is going after the gluten. It's reacting to the gluten, perhaps because you had a concussion or Mm -hmm. had a big emotional trauma and you have leaky gut and you developed this. And, and then it sees the thyroid gland and goes, Oh, well that looks like gluten. And it goes after the thyroid. So some people, and it, and some people come in, they're ready to do 100%. Mm-hmm. And I give them a choice. We can address this autoimmune process and get to the root cause of this immune uh, storm or imbalance. Um, you can take some thyroid medication now to make you feel better while we're doing that. And so some people choose, they say, I'm going to get rid of gluten. I want to look at all the cross-reactive, because that's another thing, a lot of cross-reactive yes. gluten foods. So there are a lot of grains, coffee, chocolate that cross-react, and so you can end up sensitive and have to get rid of all those too. I will not give up my coffee. I will give up my gluten. <laughs> I can't do coffee. Well, I gave up I gave up dark chocolate for six months. I can do dark chocolate. But just, I don't even do dark but, chocolate, but anyway, um, I hear you. So, so, you know, if you have a dedicated patient, they will take the route of, I really want to address the immune system. Yeah and not start the thyroid medication now. And then we redraw and see what kind of progress they make. I, you know, I have had some patients who say that. And then really when you follow up, their thyroid levels haven't changed and they haven't gotten rid of the cross reactive foods. And then it's like, well, maybe, maybe you'd like to take a little bit of thyroid medication now, but the thyroid, I mean, it's one hormone in this big, stew of hormones and every hormone impacts every other hormone. So again, I always beg the question, well, why are they having thyroid issues? Why are they having hormonal issues? And uh, one of the things that is showing up in my office a lot is mold toxicity. And here we are in the Southeast and that causes huge inflammatory issues and hormonal imbalances. Yeah. And so I can say that, you know, again, it's about education. So as I progressed through all the training, you know, so I spent four years going through the functional medicine training and then adding more, you, you inevitably miss things, right? Anything that you do <clears throat> is going to improve the situation. So addressing the gut, addressing the inflammatory load, that is not a waste, even if you miss enemy number one. Well, I find, and I think it might be good to kind of hone in on some things for our audience, in when looking at depression or anxiety mm-hmm. or looking at an autoimmune issue like Hashimoto's or even psoriasis um, mm-hmm. or looking at uh, irritable bowel syndrome, I find that if we take a look at the diet, if we find ways to buffer stress, Um, And cleaning up the diet, and I do believe food sensitivity testing, or eating just cleaner, eating more vegetables, eating uh, grass-fed and pastured and organic meat, you know, eating cold water fish. I mean, as you you know, essential fatty acids so important to the brain. I think the brain is what sixty percent or seventy percent fat. Yes, it's a close. Yep. Yeah, that's a lot of fat. That's a lot of fat, and it really it's nourished by you know DHA. Also looking at D3 levels and, you know, some of our best D3 comes from here at MUSC. And I've seen it and you've seen it too. So many people with depression and anxiety, their D is so low. And just by optimizing that, um, looking again, and you've both, we've both seen it, undiagnosed celiac. 
that happens. But another thing, MTHFR. Yeah. And if you want to touch on that, and I see a lot of that with anxiety, and I think that's a big part of the picture with so many people with anxiety and depression. Do you want to, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. And you know, MTHFR, I would sort of call it all the rage now. Um, and I do test it on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of my patients have, um, it's called a SNP yeah, single nucleotide polymorphism, which is basically, um, a genetic defect. I mean, it's like, like you don't want that. Um, and there are two of them. There are two different ones that we test right. for. And one has bigger repercussions than the other, the C677T. And so uh, the long and the short of it is, is that methylation is really critical. And the MTHFR has to do with your body's ability to methylate. So, it's an enzyme yep. that so, allows the proper utilization of um, folate. Yes. Just want to explain that to Yes, cool. of methylated. And of methylated, yes. Right. Not folic, and we can go into that. It's yes, synthetic. and so yeah. uh, one of the things to know, I, I mean, detoxification is, is so all-important because we're in such a toxic world right now, um, and methylation is really critical for your body's ability to, to detoxify. So, you know, if you have one of these mutations, it's estimated that there's a drop of about 30% to 40% of your ability to detox, and if you have two it's uh, more like 80% uh, uh, drop. And I'm well aware, I mean, both of my daughters have two of the C677 team. My husband has two. I have one. I generously gave mine to both of my girls. That's the way it works. A mother gives you one. A father gives you one. So uh, the, 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 the problem now is that people rush to put people on really large doses of methylated folate. and a lot of these doses are way too much and it can interfere with your ability to really make enough uh, serotonin. And so you have to start uh, with methylated B12. And so what you're doing is you're trying to push um, uh, the production of methyl products, basically. But they do so much more than detoxification. They repair DNA. They make neurotransmitters. But can but I also see, and maybe you can elaborate more, I see a lot of that with anxiety. Huge. And depression. And for me, because I do so much work with infertility. Yes. I, you know, when I'm seeing women... Oh, early miscarriages. Huge I have, I early have miscarriages a with the MTHFR. wave right now of women... And I just know that that's. I know a big, it's so sad to think, and that it is, and it's like, why isn't anyone tested for this? So in my world, I'm always making sure, and I want to make. And here's another important issue for everyone: folate is is so important for healthy detoxification of hormones, and um, it's important in healthy cellular division and genetic expression and anxiety and depression. So please, when you buy a multivitamin, make sure it has a methylated B12 and a methylated folate. And most vitamins out there commercially don't unless they're a nutraceutical, high nutraceutical grade. Yeah, and part of the problem is the synthetic folic acid Inhibits. Uh, curbs your ability to use your methylated folate. Yes. So yeah. cereals that are fortified. Yes. You know, or I mean a prenatal vitamin with folic acid in it. That now, kills me. The, I'm just like I can't to me that feels like malpractice. <laughs> There's there should be no prenatal with folic acid. Well, there are two points here to make though. Is one, there are a lot of other things going on in in our pathways to allow yes. for methylation. So sometimes you can find somebody with these mutations who really don't have that much problem, but we're not mm. there yet. And we're not testing all of that. Yeah. So, and then the other piece is that people can be overmethylated. Mm-hmm. And I did training with Dr. William Walsh, who is really an expert in this field on over and under methylation and copper zinc imbalances, and then something called pyroluria, where you sort of spill your zinc in B6. So I have occasionally had somebody with the MTHFR mutation who's actually overmethylated, and I'm thinking of a patient right now who was pregnant, and I had to dig deeply to find a high-quality prenatal without the methyl groups in it. It was, it, there is one out there. I can't remember which one it is. I could go back to the records and find it. So 
you you can sometimes flip from being overmethylated to undermethylated. It's it's probably more material than uh, and, this and podcast. And I want to make it very clear into this, but but I think it's also really important. I just want to make it clear to any woman who's trying to get pregnant to yeah. make sure she's taking a prenatal with methylated folate. Yeah, and and not second guess and try to figure out if she's over quote unquote methylating. Does that well? She could go to a, a doctor who's a William Walsh. Uh, trainee who would help them with that because you can find out. Yeah. 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 But I think for the, the vast general majority, for the, yes, I, that's vast, what I really, I'm the, talking the about exception. the majority. That's yeah. The and exception. that's a very, that, that's an exception. And I, I think, you know, in light of this conversation, I think for the majority of people that we're, we're talking to, that's an, I want to make yeah. it very clear because I've seen women who have come to see me that were not on prenatals and went on to have miscarriage. Yeah. So, um, but. Well, you know, I had five early miscarriages and I didn't know I had the MTHFR mutation. Yeah. So I'm a case in point. Yeah. You know, could be other things, but. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's very high on the list of fallouts of that. So. Mutation. What. So again, in light, if we're dealing with somebody who has anxiety and depression. And I want to talk about psychotherapy yeah. and therapy. Isn't this, shouldn't this be the first approach in conjunction with looking at diet, lifestyle, exercise? Exercise is amazing for serotonin levels. Yes. And so if we take, you know, it's funny because I feel like even 20 years ago, there was more of a lifestyle, you know, what do you, how are you eating? What are you doing? And, you know, focus on, on therapy before even considering an antidepressant. Yes. When it was, with the older antidepressants, you had to get EKGs and draw blood levels. And so right. it was a much bigger deal. Yes. You know, you didn't have a lot of primary care doctors just writing a prescription yeah. for the tricyclics. So it's so easy to prescribe the SSRIs. But, That's but, part of it. And, 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 and it's upsetting because I'll have clients that come in to see me in their primary, put them on Prozac, didn't recommend therapy, and they've been on it for like 10 years. So I guess what I'd, I'd like to have the conversation, a promising note, that therapy can really change and take people out of a state of what we are calling depression, and I feel part of that. Do we need to start looking more internally? What's going on in our, in our lives? You know, there's, a, there's that biochemical issue. I mean, we can look at, yes, leaky gut, and we can look at thyroid and look at lifestyle and low vitamin D and lack of exercise, but where's the joy and the balance in someone's lives? What, right. how, do we, how do we focus on that before we put them on a medication? We're so quick to medicate. Well, the other piece is that the medications can often numb your feelings or numb your ability to get in touch with uh, how you move through life, you know, how you react. Um, I mean, I'll never forget a woman who came in and her husband had died and a couple of years, no, six months, six months after her husband died, she went to her primary care doctor for a routine appointment and she cried in the office. And he prescribed her an SSRI. And she came in and she said, I don't want to be cut off from my emotions. Mm. And how do you, you know, grief is one of those things where if you don't process the grief with the help of a therapist or on your own, if you don't process that and you bury it, it is always waiting for you. And yes. then maybe five years later, your cat dies and you completely fall apart. So it's so important to go through these processes, emotional, psychological, spiritual processes, because they're, they're harbored in the body. Um, there are a lot of different, there's a lot of different terminology for that. Um, but I mean, that's what the body-oriented psychotherapy training that I did was all about is that you hold on to all this and it creates blocks. And we are, we are totally energetic bodies. This is not woo-woo, uh, Nobel Prize winning. Physicists have established this, that we're 99.999% uh, wave energy and 0.0001% uh, matter. And so you have all this space, you know, these electrons spinning around, uh, your atoms and creating, there's all this space and it's a waveform. So 
are we affected by other energy forms that come at us? You know, what happens when we lose a spouse or somebody dear to us energetically? Do we get blocks? Absolutely, we get blocks. We're bombarded by, uh, you know, Wi-Fi and different electromagnetic disturbances that also have an impact. And that's another thing that we don't talk about. Yeah. Um, that, so I do think that when we tune into the emotional part, that it does have an effect on the energetic health of your body, which then helps relieve whatever medical, some of the medical issues that you have or prevent them. Um, you know, my next show is going to be with Dr. Anita Johnston, and she's just this amazing psychologist that has, uh, specializes in disordered eating and has opened up clinics around the world. And, you Wonderful. know, she and I have had these incredible conversations, really excited about having her on the show because, you know, for example, how do you discern between a physical and an emotional hunger? You have to sit with what you feel. We don't sit with what we feel. We think, oh my God, I am uncomfortable. We get anxious about that as opposed to, wow, let's explore what you're feeling uncomfortable and anxious about. Right. And, and sometimes, I know this sounds simple. I had a client the other day in the office um, and we just did some simple breathing and it was amazing how her energy completely changed. And she said, oh my God, I feel like a different person. Just did some breathing technique with her. And everybody, and everybody can do that. I, there, there's a lot of different breathing techniques and it's not like one is better than the other. I'm a no. big fan of alternate nostril breathing mm-hmm. techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so it incorporates different aspects. But you know, if you did that for less than five minutes a day, better, you know, a couple of times a day, but it immediately, you know, any of that deep breathing stimulates that vagus nerve um, basically, that diaphragm going up and down and up and down in your chest through which the uh, vagus nerve runs stimulates the vagus nerve and sends the message to calm down. And there is, there is another study uh, recently done that if we take 10 deep breaths and yeah. do that inhalation, exhalation, and do that every couple of hours as opposed to just sitting down and doing a 20-minute meditation, it'll keep the body, it'll continue to create those neural pathways to um, keep the body out of that fight or flight response. And doing that before you sit down to eat a meal or sit down to eat the meal and then do... Yes, beautiful. Yes, my husband and I will hold hands and do, I say, okay, three deep breaths, you know, because what do you, you want to turn off all that chatter of the day Mm -hmm. and, you know, sit down to your meal and get the parasympathetics going because that's when you digest. I would love for you to walk us through what is it like to get somebody who's been on an antidepressant or a cocktail of meds and maybe that consists of also Adderall and Ambien. What does it look like to get them off those meds? What is that process like? What's the journey like? How do they change? So a lot of times when people come in and they've been on these medications for a long time, you don't really know if that is the person because SSRIs do cause cognitive problems. I've had lots of patients who come in and say, I prided myself on having a great memory and now I, you know, I step into a meeting and I forget what it is that I'm going to say. Um, Also, the SSRIs impact the gut. There was a study on Zoloft about uh, microcytic colitis. So we know that it has gut changes. And we know that the gut is the second brain and informs you. So you can have an anxiety disorder just from your gut issues. So when somebody comes in... So could you have an anxiety order due from gut issues that is being amplified or even triggered by the antidepressant that they're on? Absolutely, it can be amplified by that. And so, yes, there's the goal to get them off, but you the emphasis that we've already talked about, about doing it slowly. Mm-hmm. But so what I, what I do is I try to explain the physiology of the SSRIs. And I also explain about the whole, you know, bucket of inflammation that every single person has. So you have this bucket and we know that there's an inflammatory process going on in depression and anxiety. So you have a bucket and everybody's bucket is a little bit different. And so you can have pollen allergies and a couple of food sensitivities, 
Um, you can have a low-grade, you know, a, a virus, a low-grade infection, um, a history of uh, food poisoning that's really disrupted things. And then something happens and it starts to spill over. And when the bucket starts to spill over, that's when you become really sy- symptomatic. And so I have this conversation with patients about, well, let's identify like what all is in that bucket and what can we, what changes can we make now? We don't have to change everything. But so for one person, it might be, I can change my diet. For another person, it might be, I can commit to exercising. I really like, you know, I can amp that up. Uh, which by the way, um, changes DNA expression. Unbelievably, the studies are so exciting on exercise. So you, you try to meet people where they are and you get the green light about well, what are they capable of doing right now. And you have to know that anything that they choose is going to have a ripple effect. And so then their capacity and resilience improves. And so for some people, you might have to really load them up on um, nutrients that they're deficient in because they're not absorbing them, and then adrenal support because they've mm-hmm. been so stressed out. Yes. And then they start to feel better, and then they feel like they can tackle it. And peeling back the layers, the, the cognitive piece is so huge. I have patients in their 40s that I'll do a Montreal cognitive assessment on that fail it. We're talking about... I don't know what that is. Which, which means that you're headed to dementia, that's what it looks like. Okay. Because that inflammation in the brain that's been going on for a long time uh, really does have an impact. And I, I did, you know, this is the rabbit hole, an entirely different, an additional training on reversing cognitive decline. So now I actually treat patients with dementia and they're in their 40s to, you know, 80s. And a lot of it is due to certain toxic loads. But I missed that before I did this training, that some of my younger people coming in long-term on SSRIs aren't firing on all cylinders cognitively. And that's really frightening. And so you want to go into later life uh, with a lifestyle. You've used the word lifestyle over and over. It's not like, oh, let's do a cleanse. Let's do a detox. Oh, I'm going to do this anti-inflammatory three-week thing. No, you have to live your life that way. Yes. And so for some people, I mean, I can eat, meet people with really terrific incomes and they're not eating organically. And I'm like, you know, there's no excuse. You can afford organic food. That is absolutely taking something in that bucket and throwing it out. You know, you are lowering that level. I've had people change their diets, like gluten is a great example, and get off their Zyrtec for allergies that they've been on 365 days a year. What did they do? They lowered the level in their inflammatory bucket. And so every, every single person who comes into my office, and the vast majority is anxiety, um, has that bucket of inflammation, and it is spilling over. So that's a long answer to your question. No, that's a great answer because I think it really breaks down what people... Uh, I think need to hear, you know, we look at depression and we think, oh, I'll take something for that, but we don't see the repercussions. We don't see what we can actually do to create change. And I do in my office, but I love how you're sharing this. I think it gives people a tremendous amount of hope of the changes that they can make. And also you emphasizing, or at least I'm hearing this, long-term antidepressants are really, I mean, they really contribute to cognitive decline. And I'm starting to wonder if we're going to start seeing people displaying symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's in their 40s as opposed to in their 50s and 60s. And um, I think we're setting the stage for that with long-term use of, of antidepressants. Is that... Yeah, and it's and but it's always on top of other things, you know. So yeah, it's 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 a cocktail. Right. It's it's. I mean, and I will say this: I'm trying to get Elizabeth Warren on the show, and I would like to discuss with her. I hope somebody gets us through to her. I had written to her committee in South Carolina. You know, we're talking about uh, healthcare insurance, but we're not talking about the underpinnings and the root cause of why healthcare is so expensive. It's America's lifestyle and their diet and the choices we're making. 75% of Americans are overweight. 
40% are obese. This is contributing to cardiovascular issues, diabetes, and depression, and, and, and an array of things. What I would say is that the other thing that inevitably comes up with patients when you're talking about these labs, which all cost money, the appointments, mm-hmm. is this is an investment that is going to so decrease the dollars spent later in oh, life yes. medically and lost wages. Nobody factors that in. You know, you might have to retire at an earlier age because you're cognitively slowed down. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it might on the surface when somebody comes to work with you or they come to work with me that, oh, they're, having, they're, they're paying for all these labs and all this stuff, these supplements. It, you're, it is such an investment in the future. And if you can see the whole forest and the big picture, what you know is that this is a super great financial investment. Yes. You know, it it has such a huge um, implication for what you're going to be like as you age. And the dementia piece, I mean, we really didn't touch on that. And I'm very, very passionate about treating dementia patients, but our generation... Mm-hmm. you know, is going to sink the economy. I mean, that's a great thing to talk to Elizabeth Warren about. That's part of the issue, I feel, with healthcare and mental health and, and overall health. We need to look at root cause. What kind of, what, what programs are we going to put into play? Are we going, to, that are really going to make an impact on people's health? So if people would like to work with you, how can they reach you? Um, so I'm local here in Charleston. I have a website called Whole Health Psychiatry and Nutrition. So it's www.wholehealthpsychiatry.com. I have a phone number with a wonderful assistant who's been with me for five years. Um, so we actually call people back <laughs> or answer the phone. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love this work. Um, and what is the phone number at your office? Oh, 843 843- Two two five zero one eight zero. And how would you what what would you like to say to conclude this conversation that we've had today? That it's never too late to start digging, and peeling back the layers might feel overwhelming in the beginning, but once you address one layer, life gets better. Then you have more capacity to address what's ahead, and then you peel back another layer. And the search is part of the process. And the beautiful thing is, it might be anxiety that brings you in, because that's probably what I see the most of. Mm -hmm. But you decrease your risk for cancer, heart disease, um, uh, migraine headaches. So the work that you put in now has huge repercussions for the rest of your life in a really, really positive way. And I will let everyone know that I think Caroline Smythe is amazing. And I think she's one of the, I'm I'm very thankful that down here in Charleston we have you because your approach is profound and it's about healing the whole person. You come from your heart. You're so smart though. You're such a smart doc, but you really listen and you hold the space so that people can heal, but also believe that they can do it. And that's a gift. And you have a gift to empower someone to create change. That's extraordinary. Well, I'm so glad that you said that because that's a great note to end on is that you really need to believe. You need to believe because you're informing your body when you believe something. You need to believe that you can do this. And maybe it does take the assistance of a doctor. Some, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people can make huge changes on their own. Um, but that belief coupled with your you know, good intentions um, and allowing yourself enough stillness to get in touch with that. Absolutely. The powerfulness that you have in you, just how powerful you are to start facilitating that change. Yep. Yes, it's learning how to feel comfortable, finding comfort in the discomfort. And actually the discomfort is an opportunity to grow. That's why it's there. It's time to move and grow. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, this has been fun. Oh, and I'm going to have you back with someone else, and we're going to have another conversation. um, Because I I, I think it's really important to start talking about what does it mean to really lean in and sit with what we feel so that we can heal 
and not feel that we have to depend on some type of medication to do that for us. So I want to thank everyone for listening today. And um, feel free to reach out to me at megrichichi at gmail.com or check out my site at megrichichi.com. If you'd like to work with me, I would love to uh, be part of that for you and part of your process. So please subscribe, rate, review, would love your reviews. It really helps others to uh, listen to this podcast because these podcasts can change your life. So you can check out my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get a podcast. Again, everyone, thank you for listening. And I just want to reiterate, if you're feeling uncomfortable, it is an opportunity for change and growth. And you have a community of people out there that can help you in this journey. So many blessings to all. Thank you for joining me in the Hormone Lifestyle Zone, and I will see you soon.